Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges, chapter 19. Judges 19, and I gave a brief warning uh, via email and social media that today's passage deals with some mature, really explicit themes. And so uh, I wanted to give a warning to parents and a heads up that just to prepare your child or teen for this. And if at any point today you feel like it's just a little too much, I totally get it. You need to just graciously excuse yourself. I totally understand. Uh, no judgment there. Um, however, my commitment to you is even though the Bible brings up rated R things, it doesn't bring it up in a rated R way. I always appreciate it, but there's no graphic details, but it is very blunt. So I want to start reading at Judges 19. And by the way, if you're new here, we especially want to welcome you. And the book of Judges is all about the life of Israel in the Old Testament before they had a king. We see what their life was like on the ground, and today is going to give us a picture of that. So Judges 19, verse 1, it says, In those days Israel had no king. We've seen that a couple times mentioned. And then it says, Now a Levite or priest who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So if you look on screen... We have this map. I showed it last week, and uh, Ephraim is kind of this middle region here. Here's Jerusalem down here, and Bethlehem is just south of that. So the Levite and Ephraim took a concubine from the Bethlehem region. And then it says in verse 2, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he, wel he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So let's stop there just for a moment. So there's a Levite or a priest only the Levites were allowed to serve in the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament, and they were allowed to marry, but really, should a Levite be marrying a concubine? And the answer is no. A concubine was somewhere between a wife and a prostitute, somewhere in the middle, really a legal mistress. So, so really, this concubine is more like his piece of property that he can do with her whatever he wants. Even though it says he's her husband, it's really not a two-sided equal relationship. He has all the power, and she has, is more of a piece of property. And it says she's unfaithful to him, so she leaves, goes back to her parents' home. He goes to find her, and her father, his father-in-law, is going to show over-the-top, kind of crazy hospitality. So let's see that here in verse 5. On the fourth day, so they've been there three days already, eating and drinking and enjoying themselves. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat. Then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the, afterward excuse me, the woman's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father said, now look, it's almost evening. 
Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. So it was common back then when you went to a city and visited, you wouldn't go to necessarily like a Holiday Inn or a Marriott. You would go to the city square, and you would hope that somebody would have some mercy on you and show you hospitality and let you spend the night. But thus far, there is none. So we just had this picture of incredible hospitality from his father-in-law, this kind of over-the-top hospitality, you know, spend the night, stay here, refresh yourself, don't leave. And he may have been showing that because um, the Levite, because the concubine is more like a piece of property, he could have gone and punished her, abused her, really killed her for being unfaithful in that day and age. I know that's not right, but that's what he could have done, so maybe the father-in-law was extra generous for that. But either way, we see this stunning picture of hospitality, and they are now, if you look up on screen now, they are in Benjamin, which is just north of Jerusalem here, Gibeah, that is. So they're not quite home up here. They're just right here. And they want us to know that this is now in Israelite territory, okay? So verse 16, let's keep going. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, said the old man. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. Does that sound a little bit ominous? Yes. Verse 21, so he took them into his house and fed the donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. So this old man from Ephraim invites them into his house, shows them hospitality, and then it says in verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Verse 23, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Verse 25, but the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, 
And they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. And this is God's word for today. So let me say a few comments by way of introduction. I want to remind you of 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed, including Judges 19, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So just keep that in mind here. Even though this is a horrible disgusting passage, even this passage we can learn a lot from. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is sometimes when we read the Old Testament, don't you want the narrator to come out and say, and this was wrong, right? This is horrible. We read a lot of horrible stories in the Old Testament just as bad as this or worse. And sometimes you want the narrator just to say, give kind of one of those quick judgments. But this is how Old Testament stories work. They often just report something, and we should know from reading the rest of the Bible that this is absolutely wrong. So often what I'll say is what the Old Testament reports is not what it supports. What it reports is not what it what? Supports, all right? So keep that in mind. And then thirdly, as we think about this passage, does this story remind you of another Old Testament story? What story does it remind you of, if you know your Bibles? The story of, what is it? Lot Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. So let me read a little bit of that. Genesis 19. This is the story of Lot, who's the nephew of Abraham. And he has two angelic visitors disguised as human beings with him, staying with him. And it says, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Sounds just like our passage. Verse 6, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And Lot said, Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you would like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. And so really, as we read Genesis 19, excuse me, Judges 19, We are to be thinking about what story? Genesis 19. Genesis 19 was Sodom and Gomorrah. That took place in a pagan, non-Israelite city. But now in Judges 19, where is the action taking place? In Israel. So the author of Judges is telling us that what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened a long time ago, is now happening within Israel. We are to feel the weight of that. Israel has gotten to such the point and degraded so much as a society 
that what has taken place in Sodom and Gomorrah is now happening there. And to make matters worse, the Levite takes his dead concubine, cuts her up into 12 pieces, which is horrible and disgusting, sends the pieces of the body to the different parts of Israel because he is trying basically to, to get a bunch of people on his side so he can take revenge on them. You know, last week we talked about making God in our own image. We do this all the time. We don't like something about God or the Bible, so we kind of redefine it and make it make God a little more digestible to us. Well, that's what Israel's doing here too. They have become so much like the culture around them that, that really in every area of their lives, they're almost indistinguishable. They have made God into their image so much that they have redefined all sorts of things, including sexuality and how they treat human beings. So instead of Israel being this distinct, different, holy people set apart for the Lord, they have become just like the people and the nations around them, including in the area of sexuality. The culture has influenced them so much. And here's a question for you. Do we ever, even as the church, get influenced by the culture around us, including in the area of sexuality? And the answer is, of course. And so what I want to do is look at three common views, three common views, cultural views of sex in our society and compare them to the biblical view, okay? So here's the first view that's common in our culture. It's the idea that sex is nothing. Sex is just a physical thing. Sex is just sex. So what's the big deal? You know, this is an attitude that the Apostle Paul will confront in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's writing to a church, and he has to tell the church, don't sleep with temple prostitutes, which is shocking that he has to tell them that. But one of the things he quotes is this idea that sex is just physical, that there was this common view that just as when you're hungry, you eat, when you're tired, you sleep, when you have a sexual urge, you just fulfill it because sex is nothing. It's just physical. But is it true that sex is just nothing? No. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of creation, when God created Adam and Eve, it says in Genesis 2, 24, when God first made Eve, it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become what? Let's, let's say it together. One flesh. So the Bible describes the union of a husband and wife as one flesh. That means they are so connected that basically they form a new family, a new identity, a new person, even though they're two, they are now one. And Paul will quote this same verse in 1 Corinthians 6 in the New Testament. He'll say, do you not know that he who unites or sleeps with a prostitute is one with her in body? And then he quotes it, for it is said, the two will become what? One flesh. So he's not just saying that that's a physical thing. If you have a one-night stand with a prostitute, he's saying that's not just physical. You are uniting with her or him, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually and emotionally. That sex is more than just sex. It is the culmination of every single union in your life. So why would it make sense to sleep around or have a one-night stand? By the way, this is why practically, and I think you know this too, if you've ever slept around or know someone who has, you will admit, right, and they'll admit that it's not just physical, is it? There is an emotional, 
toll it takes on you. There's a relational toll it takes on you. There's a mental and really a spiritual toll that it takes on you when you sleep around and you don't leave sex within the marriage relationship of a husband and wife. So sex this way is wrong, not just because it's sinful, but it also will personally harm someone because God designed it, God made it to be a one flesh union between a husband and a wife. So that's the first view of sex that's in our culture. The second view of sex that's common in our culture, or used to be common, is the idea that sex is dirty. It's kind of a necessary evil for the survival of the species. Now, this may not be so prevalent in mainstream culture. This may be prevalent maybe if you grew up in a church that you know, didn't talk about sex, it was kind of taboo, or maybe with parents who hardly talked about it. It's kind of this idea that we don't talk about it, we don't bring it up, it's kind of a necessary evil, you know, it's kind of taboo. But if you look at the Bible, sex is not dirty at all. In fact, sex is beautiful in the context of a husband and a wife. So let me quote, a, let me quote an Old Testament passage, and it's almost surprising this is in there in the Old Testament. So Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says this, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth a loving doe, a graceful deer. And then it says this, husbands, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Now men, husbands, that's a command. (laughs) It's hard to get around that one, isn't it? That's in the Old Testament. So if I ask men, what is now your favorite verse? It's probably no longer John 3.16. It's this right here, isn't it? But it's not just Proverbs that brings this up either. Did you know there's an entire Old Testament book that talks a lot about sex? Do you know what it is? What's it called? Song of Songs. And here's a quote from an Old Testament scholar that talks about that book. I mean, it is hard to read the Song of Songs without blushing. Here's what this scholar says. The role of the woman through Song of Songs is truly astounding, especially in ancient culture because ancient culture really devalued women. It is the woman not the man who is the dominant voice in the book. She pursues and speaks and initiates with the man. And in chapter five, she boldly exclaims her physical attraction and says things like this. His abdomen is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphire. So there you go, women. You can use that language with your husband. And then it says this. Most English translations hesitate at this verse. The Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy or shamed mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. So maybe my next sermon series should be the Song of Songs, right? We can take a vote on that later. But it's amazing how the Song of Songs picture sex, even in the Old Testament, as this beautiful thing between a husband and wife. It's not dirty. It's not demeaning. So the Bible is actually very for sex in the right context. Let me go to the third view of sex. We've got to keep moving here. We said sex is nothing. Sex is dirty. The third view of sex that's really prevalent in our culture is that sex is everything. It is a path to self-expression and self-fulfillment. One theologian says it like this, this view of sex sees sex as a critical form of self-expression, a way to be yourself and find yourself. It's for your personal 
individual fulfillment and self-realization, however you wish to pursue it. So this view of sex, I think, is probably the most dominant view of sex that if you watch a movie now or watch a TV show on Netflix that's being preached to you when you watch that show. And it's this idea that, you know, what I do with my sex life is none of your business. What you do is none of my business. Who are you to tell me what's wrong? Who am I to tell you what's wrong? I mean, if it happens privately in my own bedroom, who cares? Who is it affecting Sex is something to be experimented with and explored. It's a way of finding myself and really expressing my true, authentic self. Now, is this the biblical view of sex either? No. Sex in the Bible is not about self or getting necessarily. It's about giving and serving. Sex is not about finding our identity because if we make sex everything, That was not the burden that sex was meant to have. Only God can take that burden. Sex is about giving to your spouse. Sex is about glorifying God. It is is an expression of your union in your marriage and every other area of your life. So in the Bible, sex really is about two things. First of all, on the next slide, sex in the Bible is about a covenant between a husband and a wife. Say the word covenant with me. Covenant, you've probably heard that word. It's like a contract, a commitment, but it's even deeper than that. Sex in the Bible is about a covenant between a husband and a wife who have committed through thick and thin, no matter what, to be there for each other. And it's not just physical in a covenant, but it's social and economic and relational. It's legal, it's mental. In the marriage covenant, you lose your independence for the sake of love and becoming one flesh. In this covenant, your physical union becomes an expression of every other union in your lives. So sex becomes this beautiful thing between a husband and a wife. By the way, I I hear many people say, well, I don't need a piece of paper to show that union or to express that. I don't need a a covenant. You know, we can just live together and love each other. And I, I hear what you're saying But if you do that or know someone that does, you're still giving yourself a way out. You're still kind of leaving the back door open that just in case this doesn't work out, it is much easier for you to flee and find someone who who will fulfill your desires. Rather, within a marriage, you have committed to yourself exclusively and not just physically, but legally and socially and financially. You put up some safe boundaries and borders that protect your marriage relationship, including your sexuality. There's a huge difference. So if you understand that sex is about the covenant between a husband and a wife, then you will understand 1 Corinthians 7. This is a surprising passage in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Now, that's kind of shocking if you think about it in that day and age because in that culture, a husband, you know, would have been married to his wife and had children through her, but it was often known that men would often sleep around on the side with mistresses and prostitutes, and that was culturally okay, where the woman, if she did that, it wasn't okay. I know it's not, that's a double standard. So, so when Paul says that the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but it belongs to whom? His wife. That was shocking. Paul says in verse 5, do not deprive each other, 
He's talking about the physical sexual relationship, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to what? Prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, I mean, these, these verses are very honest. Like, your body, if you're married, yourself doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to the other person and vice versa. So if you understand that marriage is about a contract or a covenant, excuse me, not a contract sounds so uh, legal, but a covenant, a deeper spiritual relationship, then you'll live out this passage. Sex is also about one more thing, not just about a covenant between a husband and wife, but sex in the Bible is about, let's read it together, a covenant with God. Because everything that God gives us in life is meant to reflect our relationship with him. Sex becomes a picture of the type of union and intimacy that we have ultimately with Jesus. That may sound kind of weird to say it that way, but as close as we can be to a physical spouse, it still pales in comparison to the kind of union and intimacy we can have with Christ. I mean, think about this. How many of you have been married for a long time? Maybe you're scared to raise your hand with that, but are there days still when your spouse baffles you, surprises you, confuses you, even after all those years? As close as you can be and you know them well, it still pales in comparison to how much Jesus knows you and how united you are with Jesus. In addition, the glory that we often feel in sex, that Song of Songs talks about, points to the true glory we have and will have with Jesus face to face. And the giving of ourselves that we give in the, in the sexual relationship with our spouse pales into comparison to how Jesus gave his life for us. So you want to have the best sex ever, church? Maybe you've never heard a preacher say this before. But you want to have the best sex ever? Make it all about giving to your spouse and make it all about glorifying God. Make it about giving to your spouse and make it about glorifying God and you will have the best sex life in your marriage ever. Well, back to Judges 19. I know we haven't been there in a while now, it seems like. If you think of Judges 19, why are they doing what they're doing? I mean, that is a horrible passage. It's disgusting. I read that passage and it makes you kind of want to just throw up, doesn't it? Well, if you look at verse one, it says this, in those days, Israel had no what? King. And it's not just talking about a human king because they're going to get human kings later on and that's not going to solve their condition. What it's really talking about is they had no spiritual king. God was not their king. And do you know what happens in our lives when we don't let God be our king and call the shots? Then we start to call the shots. Culture does and it's kind of an anything goes mentality, including in this area of sexuality. If we don't let God define the shots, we'll even redefine God and make him in our own image so he fits my sexual identity and my sexual preferences or my sexual orientation. But instead, if God is our king, if we allow God to be God, then he can come in and challenge us. Even if we don't like his standard of sexuality, which I've been trying to argue is beautiful, by the way. The key question for us this morning is, are we going to let God be God even if we don't like it, even if culture doesn't like it, even if our own heart doesn't like it? and trust that he knows best, including in this area of sexuality. You know, I know there's a lot at stake here. This isn't just theory or theology. Chances are you're struggling in this area, 
you know someone that's struggling in this area. This is a very personal matter. But the key question is, am I going to let God be God or not? By the way, if you're single here today, you may say, well, it's not fair for a married guy to give a sermon on sex. That's just not fair. A few things I want to say to you too, and I could preach a whole sermon. Number one, and this doesn't solve everything, remember that Paul and Jesus were single. And Jesus never had sex, and yet he was the most fulfilled and complete being ever. Number two, remember too, there's tremendous advantages to singleness. I know it doesn't feel that way, it can be very lonely. But if you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul will talk at length the advantages of being single. And then thirdly, this is a challenge to our church. Are we the kind of place where singles can come in and be connected? Are we the kind of community that provides a vibrant community for singles and doesn't make them feel like they're second-class citizens? And I would say we have room to grow in that area for sure. So we need some help to figure out how can we be more welcoming to singles. I want to end with hope and also a time of response because when you read a passage like this, there's a lot of doom and gloom. I've heard a lot of those doom and gloom messages, and quite honestly, I don't think they're helpful. What's amazing to me is that despite everything going on in Israel, God wasn't surprised. He was still in control. He was still building his church and executing his plan. In fact, I think of how the, the early church in the Roman Empire thrived and flourished. They lived in a horrible culture where the emperors did horrible things, and yet the early church grew. <laughs> Jesus can still build his church even though we live in a Judges 19 culture. We need not fear culture or isolate ourselves from culture, but we are to be distinct and a light for the culture. So I want to close our time today with a time of response and a time of prayer. Uh, we're actually going to open up the front uh, to come forward and kneel and pray. And I want to invite several types of people forward today to pray. Um, one could be if you are struggling in this area of sexuality and if statistics are right, more than half of us are currently struggling with this right now, I would encourage you to come forward. I know that takes guts, but just come forward, give it to the Lord and talk to him about it. You don't have to be defined by your sexual sin. You're not defined by your sexuality. You are defined by the blood of Jesus Christ. And today can be the day where you give it to him confess it to the Lord, and find grace and mercy. The Bible says you are washed clean, whiter than snow. You're not damaged goods. You're not what the culture tells you. You are free. And today can be the beginning of that path if you're willing to come clean and just give it to the Lord. Another group I would encourage to come forward to is if you've ever been abused, we didn't hardly talk about this. If you've ever been abused sexually or physically, I would also encourage you to come forward. Because chances are you are wrestling with and struggling with shame and confusion and, and all sorts of things. You know, when you think of the concubine and the virgin daughter, you know, they were abused all night, raped all night, it says. The man, the husband, and the father were willing to sacrifice someone else so they could save their own skin. But we have a better high priest than the Levite, don't we? We have someone who didn't sacrifice others. He sacrificed himself for us. That's how much he loves us. So I would encourage you to come forward. If you're wrestling with that, struggling with that, come forward and give it to the Lord. That can be the beginning of healing in your life. I also want to encourage some other groups to come forward too. 
If you know a friend or family member that's struggling in the area of sexuality, I know that's often a great burden that families face. I would encourage you to come forward and kneel and just give it to the Lord. There is no one the Lord cannot get a hold of. And how many of you are parents here today? If you're a parent raising a child in a Judges 19 culture, isn't it crazy and fearful of what we have to protect our children from and how to parent them wisely? We don't just have the talk, we have several talks along the way, right? I would encourage you to come forward and ask God, how can I parent my children so that they see God's design for sexuality is awesome and not the world's design? Or maybe you're just concerned about the culture and our times and you feel especially burdened for this area. Come forward. How can we reach out to a culture that has gone crazy in sexuality? We don't want to isolate ourselves from culture. We want to be distinct, yes, but we want to go. We want to spread the light and hope of Jesus, including in this area of sexuality. So how can we do that? Maybe you feel burdened for that. So I want to invite some of our deacons and deaconesses forward. They're going to come forward too and either kneel with me or sit in the front row just to be ready to pray if you want to pray with someone. There's also a deacon and deaconess up in the balcony. So if you're in the balcony and you want to pray with someone, Renee and Brad are up there. So I want to give you a moment right now. If you feel led to come forward, would you just come forward and kneel with me right now? Don't be shy. There's no stigma. I know it's kind of weird to come forward. But would you just come and pray about this huge area in our life that affects us all? Go ahead and come forward right now. Father, I pray right now, Lord, as we as a church are before you, Lord, that you would intervene in our lives in this area of sexuality. Lord, if we have messed up and struggled, may today be the day we confess and find mercy and even freedom, Lord, that sexual sin does not have to define us. Lord, if we've been abused, I pray that today would be the day of beginning to experience inner healing and getting the help that we need, Lord. Father, for parents who are raising children in a Judges 19 culture, give them wisdom beyond themselves. May they point to the beauty of sex in your word and how you designed it and that it is great in a marriage, Lord. Lord, for those of us who want to reach out to the culture and know family and friends who are struggling, coworkers, God, give us a holy boldness, Lord, to talk about you. Lord, may our lives reflect and shine what you want them to be, including in this area of sexuality. May we not be afraid to talk about you and how your vision for this is better than anything the culture can offer. Father, thank you that you are in control. Thank you that you are building your church even amidst this. May you open up doors to talk about you. Father, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to continue to pray, you're welcome to. If you want to grab a deacon or deaconess or myself, I'd be happy to pray with you. Otherwise, thanks for coming. You're dismissed. <laughs>